It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are uh, spending some time revisiting some of our favorite television shows from childhood because that's more fun than talking about a lot of the news of the day. Um, but right now, we're joined by Dr. Sira Madad, who's the Senior Director for the System Special Pathogens Program at NYC Health and Hospitals, to talk about the pandemic, which we're very grateful for her being here. So I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Sira Madad. What was your favorite TV show as a kid? Oh, as a child, hmm, I'm going to have to think. Well, uh, I think growing up, I loved watching documentaries, but TV shows in particular, I was a really big fan of Sister, Sister. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, and uh, yeah, and there's a couple of others, you know, like Full House, things like that. My all-time favorites. Loved kind of growing up. In fact, you know, I have a uh, boys, and and uh, I've been telling them, you know, I want you to watch Mary Kate and Ashley uh, movies that I grew up, and they're like, "Who's that?" <laughs> I was like, "I have to put it on for you." <laughs> I love that. Well, now Sister Sisters on Netflix, so everybody can catch up with that nice. classic. It's so good. Um, it is. It makes me happy. Um, one of the th- mm-hmm. I, we have to hard pivot again <laughs> away from happy yeah, things. This is, this, is, um, this is how we do it. But but actually, it's not all bad. Let's start with the good. Actually, so the COVID yeah. vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, has been approved. Emergency use authorization has been approved for teens, the ages twelve to fifteen. Um, and you know, I think a lot of parents are excited about that news because you know they wanted to travel or do things with their families you know having a 12 year old that was not vaccinated um, was likely inducing some anxiety Um, speak to um, how that will be helpful in you know getting us towards that elusive herd immunity percentage that we at this moment are you know, having we're struggling through this last little bit here because of the anti-vaxxers and all of the misinformation. Yeah, so this this is a really good news, and there's there's two I think good news. First, as you've mentioned, the fact that we now have an FDA authorized vaccine for children between the ages of 12 and, and 15 with the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, and we know Moderna is just trailing right behind it. So there's a couple of things that I'll I'll mention um, on on that first. You know, I think it's it's important to understand that, A, this is kind of the perfect trifecta in terms of de- data that we're seeing. It's These are highly safe and effective vaccines. And we're saying safe, you know, you're seeing 100% efficacy uh, in, the, in the clinical trials. And, you know, there were over 2,000 participants in the clinical trials, and you had 18 cases of COVID-19, but they were observed in the placebo group that didn't get the vaccine versus nobody there was the, nobody that got COVID-19 in the vaccinated group. Um, so that's really good news. You also saw vaccinated kids had a very robust antibody response. 
even exceeding those reported in the age group of the 16 to 25 um, age group in the earlier trials. So that's really great news. And then the side effects were also very well tolerated. Uh, and generally what we're seeing uh, in terms of just, you know, the normal side effects um, in, in adults. And so this is really great news. The vaccine is working. And now it's going to get over. Now we're going to have to, you know, um, experience the hump of just the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines for the adolescents. And what is that going to look like? So you're going to see pediatric um, offices offer it, family practices offer it, local pharmacies offer it. But the big issue is making sure that parents um, feel comfortable and are able to get their children vaccinated. And it's important that we do vaccinate adolescents for a few different reasons, not just because, you know, it's going to help us get to that herd immunity threshold, but because of other reasons. First, while this particular age group is probably, uh, you know, one of the age groups that has the lowest um, level of, uh, you know, severe clinical disease that we've seen, that's, that's not, but that's to also say that we've seen a high number of cases in this age group. Uh, in fact, more than 3.7 million children have been infected, uh, you know, since the beginning of this pandemic. And, you know, anywhere from three to 500 have actually passed away and over 200,000 have been hospitalized. You have, um, you know, a record number of increasing proportion of cases in, in that age group um, because the shift has happened from, you know, the older population now to the younger population um, in terms of seeing hospitalizations and things like that. We also know kids can spread the disease to parents mm. and loved ones and, and things like that. And then the last thing I'll mention is that, you know, we still see children suffer from, you know, severe COVID-19 and multi-system inflammatory syndrome. So all, with all that said, I think it's important that we continue to look at vaccinating this group, um, you know, and as these vaccines roll out, we want to make sure that we're uh, providing these vaccines uh, to adolescents and make sure that we're protecting them, we're protecting communities, families, and to get back to life as normal as we as we want to, I wouldn't say pre-pandemic, because obviously, you know, we want to go back to a, a better place and build back better um, and sustain the gains, but certainly back to normal life where we can enjoy play dates and, and camp and all those things with a peace of mind. So I, it feels like the, the, the I mean, obviously we're in, we are in better conditions than we were last year under the Trump administration vis-a-vis -vis the guidance that we receive. But it, it still feels like people are asking really basic questions. And I don't I don't necessarily have the answers to how safe are you once you are vaccinated? Like we're told that, you know, you're, you're not going to die. You're not going to go to the hospital. But could you still get sick? Could you still have long haul symptoms? Could you pass the virus to somebody who was more immunocompromised or had more comorbidities than you did and have them experience uh, a really serious bout of, of COVID. And I haven't, I haven't heard a really good, like airtight, this is what we know list yet. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering why. You know what, it, uh, I'm glad you mentioned it because I am actually writing a publication and it has a table of these are the benefits at the individual level if you get vaccinated. And in that, it answers some of your core questions. And so first, if you get vaccinated, what benefits does it have to myself? So besides the community, what does it do for me? And in that, I show that individuals that are vaccinated, the risk of getting infected with COVID-19 um, dramatically decreases anywhere from 70 to over 90 percent uh, based on the vaccine that you get. Individuals that have gotten COVID-19 vaccine in terms of experiencing severe, uh, severe illness requiring hospitalization, um, it protects you by over 90 percent. 
Um, and then in terms of death, it's almost 100%, right? So if you break it down by getting infected, which is if you get the COVID-19 vaccine, very, very low. If you, um, and then if you do end up getting infected, what is your chances of getting uh, experiencing severe illness? It's even lower, very, very low. Um, and then death, almost 100%, you know, you're protected from. And so these are stats that we want to make sure people understand. These are highly safe and effective vaccines, not because of what the clinical trial data are showing us, it's because we have over 116 million people you know, that, for example, are fully vaccinated, and we're seeing real-world results um, play out uh, today. Um, and so those are the individual-level benefits. What are the community benefits of people getting vaccinated? Well, there's a couple of things. First, the more people that get vaccinated in a community, the better the community is in terms of, you know, having less people that it can spread to. Um, and then there are people in our community that can't get vaccinated because for various different reasons, you know, they're, you know, compromised, you know, things like that. Um, or they're just too young. Uh, and so we want to protect them as well. You're also seeing the number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths continue to, to plummet um, because of overall community, uh, building up that, that community immunity that, that, we're, that we're seeing. So there's a lot of different benefits, both at the individual level as well as at the community level. That makes sense to me. It does. It, it absolutely, I think we've just been operating at such a, like, zero risk like if there's any risk that i get my mom sick i'm not doing this thing and like so when you say 90 percent, i think a lot of americans are probably sitting there like well that's not 100 so uh that's you know i'm obviously not going to risk yeah. getting my family sick and i'm not gonna you know I, i'm not gonna modify my behavior now that i'm vaccinated and maybe maybe that's yeah and i think the best way to think about it is it's risk reduction versus risk elimination. Nothing is going to be 100% in that regard. But the more people that we can get vaccinated in the community, the less likelihood we'll see viral transmission. And that's why the benefits at the individual level are so great. But also at the community level, it's protecting many people. Right. Um, and the less people that obviously um, are infected, the, the more people that are vaccinated, the less likely we're able to spread the virus to, to anyone. So even in that percentage of people that, you know, um, are vaccinated and are able to potentially spread it to others. And even then, the, the risk is so, so low, because even if you're vaccinated, the amount of, let's just say, virus, you know, in your nose and mouth are still very at mini school um, levels and perhaps even not enough to, to transmit it to others or cause infection. So we're still learning about that. But at that same time, if you have more people in the community vaccinated, then you're limit, they're decreasing that list even more, that overall risk. The other thing that's happening which I, which is a good question um, to to unpack is why people who have had long COVID symptoms, why after they're getting vaccinated, they feel better? How's that happening? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's a great question. So the COVID shot, uh, so A, if you have long COVID and you get vaccinated, there's a lot of really great research that's coming out on this, and there's more to come. But it's showing that for those that are experiencing symptoms of long COVID, the vaccine actually helps to alleviate and also helps to um, prevent long COVID. Uh, and in particular, I'll mention in kids because this was a new study that recently came uh, came out. So for those that are experiencing long, long COVID and have gotten vaccinated, in terms of the actual biological mechanism of how it's helping to alleviate some of those symptoms, it's still a little bit, you know, it, you know, we're still learning more about that, mm -hmm. but we know that it's helping in the overall immune response to combat um, that mm -hmm. particular phenomena. For those that, uh, in terms of preventing long COVID um, in kids, we know that the vaccine is not only obviously 
preventing you from, you know, potentially getting infected, but it's also preventing you from, you know, experiencing long COVID if you do get infected. Let's just say you've been vaccinated and the very low likely chance that you are exposed to the virus, you know, in the community, the chances of you, uh, your body being able to replicate enough virus and then cause, you know, disease and then uh, long COVID is very, very uh, low. And so you're, you're seeing some really, really promising news come out on that. And so, you know, the, there's, there's, there's no biological plausibility for long COVID side effects. Um, you know, when you look at the, the vaccine um, and the studies that are, that are coming out, if you're, you know, once it's been uh, administered to healthy individuals. That's good news. Yep. Yeah. I think, I mean, this is, this is, I think it's the fact that like, we're, I don't want to say that we're the experiment because we have seen the experiments the, the, the there have been clinical trials of all of these vaccines. These vaccines were fully researched and vetted before they were approved by the regulatory bodies that approved them for widespread use. So it's not, it's not that we are experimenting by putting the vaccine inside our body. It's that don't know necessarily all of the long-term benefits of it and i said benefits not risks because it seems like the longer they go the more we realize that these are some of the best vaccines that have ever been created and they have they have properties that we weren't fully aware of so i I, i'm worried that people are going to hear like we still don't know like how much of a benefit it is to long-haul covid in here we don't know enough about the vaccine in in your position are you hearing that as your number one reason for vaccine hesitancy, that people just feel like the vaccine hasn't been vetted enough? Or or are you hearing different reasons? So I'm glad you, you asked that question. So there's a couple of things. And first, there's the Kaiser Family Foundation survey that they just updated. And when you're looking at, uh, you know, what are the most common concerns that people have that are in that vaccine hesitant group or that wait and see um, group, it's side effects and not knowing enough about the long-term, you know, um, uh, implications or the long-term benefits of the COVID-19 vaccine, as you've mentioned. And so as we address these concerns, A, I think it's important that these are addressable concerns and we do have really good science and evidence-based information that we can provide to them based on a real-world rollout, based on what we know since, uh, you know, vaccines have um, started in clinical trials and up until now, which you know, which is um, which is months. And so, providing that information helps alleviate a lot of their concerns and encourages uh, encourages them to get vaccinated. So, I think that first, in terms of side effects, I think we have some really great information. I mean, we're we're collecting information on an ongoing basis in terms of uh, post vaccination monitoring, and we're seeing that there has not been any significant safety signals from the Pfizer and Moderna with a J&J that certainly put a bit of a damp on overall confidence in the COVID-19 vaccine. And the survey results have shown that, particularly in women, but people still feel very confident. And, and even with the J&J vaccine, it's still a highly safe and effective vaccine. And in that particular age group of 18 to, to, to 50, certainly if, you want, if you're offered another COVID-19 vaccine like a Pfizer and Moderna, it's probably best that you choose that versus the, the J&J, even though the risk of, you know, having that a particular rare blood clot with low platelets is very, very, uh, you know, very, very low. And then on top of that, I think it's also um, good news to to look at um, the the monitoring systems that we have in place that are able to pick up any of these safety signals. And so just, I think generally, these are, again, very safe and effective vaccines, extremely low in terms of, you know, the, the rare adverse events that we're seeing. The problem you know, personally, that, you know, being boots on the ground is that when you talk to people, they often say, well, I might be that one unique person. So when we say one in a million or, or two in a million, 
how is it, you know, what if I'm that one person, you know, and what's the chances of that me being that, that one unique um, outlier? And that's a very real concern. That's a very real question. And so I think it's also important, as we state, is that these are treatable conditions, right? And so mm-hmm. um, even if you do experience an adverse event, these are treatable. And so the benefits of getting COVID-19 vaccine certainly outweigh any of the risks associated with it. Right. That makes sense. So one of the one of the things that also I've getting, also oh go ahead Z sorry one one of the other things I've also been paying close attention to um, and I I'm not sure and that's my question is how much you know the the powers that be like the the CDC and the people who trace these health departments on the state level that do the tracing how much they are tracing the different variants um, and doing the genetic testing. Um, because I'm very, like every day I read about variants because that's the one area where, you know, I suppose there's the most amount of, um, unknowns, um, and, you know, potentially we, we're sort of like lucky at this point, I suppose that, you know, none of the variants are resistant to the vaccines that we have available, but that's always, you know, the potential is always out there for that to change. Um, how are we doing in in terms of genetic tracing? I mean, I know that contact tracing wasn't really our strength from the from the beginning, um, but we do have a new administration now, so I imagine it's better than it was. Um, but I may be wrong. So I guess my question is, what type of genetic testing are we doing, and is it sufficient to keep pace with the potential for new variants that are popping up? Yeah, so so I think um, two points. First, in terms of contact tracing, certainly it's been a significant improvement over the last year. And in particular, since I'm involved uh, with the New York City Contact Tracing Program, New York City Test and Trace Corp, um, I'm the health and safety lead of the Enhanced Investigations Unit. One of the hats I play besides uh, uh, doing special pathogens for the system, I can tell you New York City has been doing a fabulous job. And in fact, all of our data is transparent and on the website um, for people to publicly see in terms of contact tracing being a huge success. But that is diff- it's, it's different based on each geographic location. So New York City has mm-hmm. been doing a really great job. I can't say the same for some of these other states when I look at some of their contact tracing data. Um, so uh, that definitely varies. Um, and I think the one thing that I'll just mention before we get into the genomic surveillance is that even though we have the United States averted that fourth wave and we're still we're in a much, much better position in the summer, if you get a call from a contact tracer, please pick up. There's still people in the United States that haven't gotten vaccinated. And so there's still mm-hmm. a very real risk of having ongoing outbreaks and, and widespread transmission in certain areas. And so if you get that call, don't think, okay, it's over. Pick up and then provide the details that, we're, that we need to stamp out transmission um, everywhere. So the second uh, question, your question you have is on genomic surveillance. And the U.S. is doing a much, much better job in terms of genomic surveillance and doing, uh, you know, um, follow-up and, and work-up on some of these specimens. In particular, CDC recently made the announcement, for example, um, on breakthrough cases, right, which are very, very far and few between. But those that end up uh, in the hospital, they're focusing more on that to see, is it because of variants? Is it because of X, Y, and Z? So I think first, at face value, the U.S. certainly is doing a much better job in terms of monitoring and doing genetic um, sequencing um, and we are able to pick up uh, variants faster than we did before. But just being able to pick it up is just one thing, right? We mm. want to make sure 
we're preventing these variants from even spreading. Um, and so luckily right now, the FDA authorized COVID-19 vaccines that we have still hold up uh, for the various variants that are circulating both domestically and around the world. And you may have heard of the, the new concerning one coming out from India, the B1617, mm-hmm. where you're seeing over, you know, 44 countries now reporting, 44 nations now reporting cases um, of, the, of this particular variant. And certainly um, it is a variant of concern now. Um, and these variants uh, are impacting our vaccines, but they're still holding up. They're still uh, providing really good uh, immune response and neutralizing antibodies. But you can't say that for future variants. I mean, as we're seeing around the world, the U.S. doesn't live in the rubble, and we've only administered over, you know, uh, you know, I think it was it one billion uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccines uh, around the the world. Um, that's certainly not enough for the population that we have, and so we cannot let virus the the virus run rampant because we have a very very real risk of having more variants emerge that will threaten our vaccine induced immunity so the ones that we have right now certainly our vaccines are holding up to but you can't say that for the future variants and we do have a plan b in terms of booster shots which is great so we have that you know um, lock you know lock and loaded and and ready to go if there is a need with that technology that we have but that that we, we definitely need to make sure that we're tamping down on transmission everywhere. And if you're seeing what's happening in India, it is devastating. Even though the mm-hmm. cases have started to decline, you're still seeing over 300,000 new cases. And that's a complete underestimate. I mean, I am working with a lot of people in India, and what they're saying is it's likely over 1 million cases every single day that they're seeing there. You're seeing Jeez. just in terms of reported oh, deaths, you know, over 4,000. Again, low, you know, that's a, that's a low ball number. Um, and so there's concerns um, that these, uh, you know, that the spread will continue in other countries in, in South Asia. So we're certainly not out of the woods globally. So we want to make sure that we're providing, uh, we're doing uh, ongoing genomic surveillance, not just here in the United States, but around the world. You know, it's one thing to do it in the U.S., but I'd rather give some of our genomic powers to some of these other countries to be able to increase their genomic surveillance because that's going to be one of the real threats that's going to come out uh, from many of these countries that have ongoing rampant uh, transmission. And so we need to, as a global community, solve the problem by providing as many vaccines as we can. And it's not just about giving vaccines. I think there's a a bit of a misconception. So look at what happened in the United States. We have a surplus of vaccines, and we've been having a good vaccine rollout, but we still have a lot of people that are hesitant. Why would we expect anything different from other countries? You're going to still see a lot of people being hesitant. They may not want to get vaccinated. So what are we doing on that? You're not hearing anything. So just one thing to give them vaccines, but you can't just think that they're going to magically appear in people's arms. Oh, it's so true. I, I, I wanted to ask a, a health infrastructure question based on, on India, because India is is responsible for a, a large portion of the of our, our medical research, of our, our you know, yeah. research and development for, for global health. Um, you know, 60 percent of vaccines are manufactured. there. a huge percentage of the pills that we take. This is not covid related. Just your general pills that you take are manufactured yeah. in India. Are, are you and is the medical community at all worried about the collapse in India and, and having a having an effect beyond just COVID-19 on global health? Oh, absolutely. And there's a couple of things, not just because of the pharmaceutical infrastructure that they have and the fact that they provide so much medical and just general equipment and supplies to around the world. But if you just look at the uh, workforce, the healthcare workforce, I don't know if people really know that a lot of um, our physicians and our, our healthcare workers in the United States, a lot of them are immigrants. And many of them come from India. So India is one of the largest countries that provides physicians to countries overseas. And as you know, right. 
not just besides the COVID-19 pandemic, the pandemic revealed the significant shortages of healthcare workers to begin with. I mean, sure, everybody heard the cries of front lines, we don't have enough people. That just gave you an exposure of we already are low on our workforce. And so now that you're seeing these countries where we get a lot of our healthcare workers from take a hit, that's going to absolutely affect our workforce here. Um, the other thing that I'll just mention is, as we, as many people may also know, that our our overall population growth has been steadily declining. That's a national security threat. And so the one way to obviously uh, look at increasing population growth is obviously not only looking at increasing birth rates, but having more, uh, you know, immigration from overseas to help stabilize our economy now and, and moving in the future. And if you're going to see countries like India and, and so many others that are taking a huge hit, um, you're not only looking at the acute phase of the pandemic that they're facing, they're going to have a long haul of increased morbidity and mortality because of the huge surge. You're going to see so many people that are sick. It's going to take a toll on their healthcare system even afterwards. It's going to affect all different, you know, phases of, uh, you know, our, our economy, our social structure, you know, the workforce and things like that. So there is going to, long, there is going to be a long tail to this outside the acute mm-hmm. COVID-19 impact that we're going to see. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, just I'm processing we're not that. About that at all. <clears throat> not at all. I haven't I haven't I have not seen or read anything <laughs> where somebody is unpacking what you just did and it's very important for us to understand. Often we yeah, do the no, thing absolutely. where we we think we're the only one that we're the only ones that exist in the world. We're like, are Americans getting vaccinated? And it's like, wait, <laughs> but wait. <laughs> we are yeah. in the world. <laughs> uh and it actually we're all connected. We're so connected. Um, we are at this we point. We absolutely are. Wow. I think the one thing that I'll also mention, uh, you know, is when we look at um, vaccine equity, it's not just obviously providing vaccines and ensuring that we're tamping down transmission in other countries because we don't want to see, uh, you know, variants emerge. And you're, that's what you're seeing in the headlines is, you know, we, we need to make sure we're preventing new variants from emerging. Uh, and so that's what we need to look at providing ongoing support. That's not the only reason. There's like, a hundred different reasons, obviously, A, we don't want to see pain and suffering. We're humans. Like if I see even an animal going through pain and suffering, that hurts me. So seeing that humans, our brothers and sisters around the world are dying from a preventable disease where we have a vaccine. I mean, no one wants to see that ongoing pain and suffering. Yes, we may have a barbecue on July 4th, but in the back of my mind, I'm still going to think about the, the thousands of people that are dying every single day in India. Um, and how we can help them. And on top of that, we live in a world we want to travel. Everybody loves traveling. And so, you know, we don't want to just stay in the U.S. People want to go to other countries. And so it's going to, you know, it's it's obviously going to affect the way we live our life. So there's so many different reasons why we need to provide equitable access to vaccines and do the right thing. Absolutely. If we have to stay inside a country, I'm going to pick a different one. (laughs) I really like traveling. And if I'm not allowed to leave, I'm going to choose somewhere else. I'm just, mm-hmm. I live in Costa Rica now, and that's that. Like, <laughs> it's just, Dr. No, Sierra nice thank planet. you so much for thank coming you. on this morning and, and explaining all of this to us. Please come back soon. Obviously, we Absolutely. need to talk to you more. <laughs> My pleasure. But I hope Anytime. that you are keeping yourself as, as sane as possible and all of the self-care in the world. Like, you have just been such a rock for this entire process so um, yes thank you i hope you get a day off every now and then i know i was like are you taking a vacation (laughs) no thank you right tomorrow i mean like can we just have ramadan so it's good okay good
Okay, good. Yeah, well, we just need to, we need to like do a national day of recognition and invitation for all public health workers, whether it's in the research lab or nurses on the, except we need them and we can't give them all a day off. So I don't know what we can do, yeah. but we'll have to figure something out because they need something more. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.